Why are we here? That's a question we're going to be trying to answer through the time of Advent or of two. And we are, as I shared with you the last couple of weeks, our focus is on the issue of discipleship. Now, we have a, a wonderful opportunity today to, to look at one of the most fascinating relationships in all of Scripture for me. It's the relationship between the Apostle Paul and his son in the ministry, Timothy. Now, we know from the Word that Timothy was led to Christ through the work of his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. But it was Paul who took him under wing. And it was Paul who was helping him to understand the man he was supposed to be, and specifically the man of God, the minister of the Lord that he was called to be. And the books of First and Timothy then give us an amazing picture of the relationship of uh, a father, spiritual father, helping his spiritual son to be discipled. Because that's really what this book is about. Now, it may sound strange for you to, for me to say that a pastor needs to be discipled, but guess what? We do. Uh, I believe as long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, there's room to grow and need to grow. And so with us, we see here a very beautiful relation played out. Now, there are some people who will look at First and Second Timothy and say, what does that have to do to me, with me? After all, Paul is telling Timothy how to be the best pastor that he can possibly be. And out of curiosity, how many pastors do we have in the room today? Not many, right? So you may be thinking, well, that book, those books don't have anything to do with me. Well, guess what? If you're thinking, I'm just a regular old church member, if I had a buzzer, I'd buzz you, no, no, no. We need to get rid of the idea of regular old church member. If by that you mean people who are Christian whose main duty is called to go to church and sit in a pew. That is not what you were called to be. That was never what God intended you to be. We've got to abandon that concept. All believers are called into some form of ministry. Yes, some will be pastors, some will be teachers, some will uh, be missionaries, and, and on and on. The differences are there, yes, but we all have a part of who we are. We all have a part of ministry, and we're going to look at this issue of ministry in much greater detail in a couple of months. But if you are a, a child of God, you are called to be a disciple. And may I say, I am extremely impressed, not with just the child, but with parents. Remember that phrase from Scripture, out of, a out of the mouth of babes? When the question was asked, what is a disciple? We had a young lady give a better definition of disciple than some adults have done. Followers of Christ. Thank you, Sarah. Followers of Christ wanting to be what Jesus meant us to be. And Jesus gave a very clear call that all are supposed to be involved in the work of the kingdom of God. He said that in a very beautiful passage that I think we misunderstand. It's found in the book of, of Matthew chapter 11. Now listen to what he had to say. And it was a call. 
And he issues this call because the people of Judea had been burdened down by the scribes and Pharisees who just heaped law upon law upon law. And folks, some of what they said didn't even come from the Scripture. Keep the Sabbath day holy. To make sure everybody did it right, they came up with hundreds of regulations of what you could or couldn't you do on the Sabbath. And to those people who never had a hope of ever achieving what God wanted, listen what Jesus said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A beautiful statement that we don't completely understand, I fear. The rest that Jesus called them to included the idea of service. He's not saying come and kick back and you can just take a nap and be calm and do whatever you want to do. No, it's a call to work. How do I know that? Because of the word yoke. You know, when an oxen, a team of oxen or a team of donkeys are applied to the yoke, they're not going to take a nap. It's work. And Craig Blomberg once said, discipleship does not exempt one from work, but it makes it manageable. All of us are called to work. Every single one of us. So Paul's words to a pastor have implications in the lives of all believers. And what we're going to look at today may sound a little confusing because what Paul is letting his people know without any hesitation is that discipleship is difficult. In discipleship, we, you and I, need to learn how to live our lives, how to serve, how to thrive. So I want us to listen to Timothy's message by Paul and understand what it means to you and me because it is speaking to us. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 6. And Paul very gently, he begins, my child, listen to these words and listen with both ears, all of your hearts. Would you please stand as we look at the word together? And Paul said to his son, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. May God bless the reading of his words. You may be seated. Paul is letting Timothy know some very important truths. And what this passage is, Paul is calling Timothy to an intentional discipleship in the cause of Christ. Paul is saying you need to really focus on what God is calling you to do. Now, I will grant you, you may immediately think when Paul tells Timothy and entrust the gospel that you've heard to, to faithful men who will in turn teach others 
And you mean, see, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to tell anybody how to be a pastor. I'm off the hook. Well, guess what? Again, you're not. You have people in your lives that you can talk to about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can help them grow up. You can point them to the truth. So all of us have somebody in our lives that we should take under wing. But the rest of the text becomes very clear. An intentional discipleship. And I've told you, and this sermon is telling you, discipleship is difficult. Now, how in the world can I say discipleship is difficult right after I've read to you a passage where Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden light? Well, we're going to get back to that, and I'm going to try to clear up what I think is the problem when we hear that, that statement. But along the way, we're going to look at some truths, some reasons about what happens in discipleship that will all point to the reality that when we decide to follow Jesus, it is a life commitment to be lived every day intentionally with purpose, dedicated, I want to be the person, God, you want me to be. So we're going to jump into these reasons for the difficulty of discipleship. And the first statement that we encounter in this passage, Alan has already alluded to. But folks, discipleship is possible only through grace. And that's why I can say it's difficult. You and I cannot be the Christian we are called to be in our own strength. We need the grace of God. And when Paul tells this to his son, the Apostle Paul gave his son in the ministry a compelling commandment. The first thing Paul says after he addresses Timothy, his son, is a commandment. And it is in the original text, it's in the present tense, a present commandment, which can carry the idea, keep on being. So there are two things that are important here. It's present, and Paul is telling Timothy, There is never a moment in time you can ever say, I'm through until it's time for you to be with the Lord. There will be always room for growth, always room to press on. Keep on. Keep on being strong. And here's the part where this really becomes fascinating to me. The statement, be strong in the grace of the Lord, as most English translations will deal with, In the original text, it is a passive commandment. In other words, it's not something that you can do. And virtually every English translation that I'm aware of treats it as an active imperative. Timothy, be strong in the grace of the Lord, in the grace of Jesus Christ. And while you have the phrase, in grace, followed by, or preceded by, in be strong in grace, it can suggest the passive nature of this, but I don't think it's clear enough. That's one of the reasons I read from the ESV today, because they treated it as a passive. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's another uh, English translation. It's called the Contemporary English Version, and it's not well known. If you came across it, you stumbled across it, it was 
recommended to you, and it's a pretty nice little work. Listen to how they treated the verse. Timothy, my child, you must let Christ Jesus make you strong by his gift of undeserved grace. And that is the proper force of this text. Paul isn't calling Timothy, dig down deep within you and find what you need to be strong for the kingdom of God. Because Paul knew that was an impossibility. Grace is what brings us to salvation. Grace is what keeps us saved. And grace is the sphere in which we live out our entire lives. Apart from grace, you and I have absolutely no hope. But Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to be strengthened by nothing less than the very grace of God. I want Jesus to pour out that grace upon you so that you can be strong enough to do what you need to do. So you could translate this, keep on being empowered by grace. How do you do that? How do you keep finding the power and grace? Well, one thing, you have to keep in your heart and your mind without any question. Christ's grace is constant and it's plentiful and it's able to change us. So every day, I have to live with the understanding, if I'm going to... If I'm going to make an impact for Jesus today, it's going to be by the grace of God. And that's what Paul is calling his son to understand. James put it this way in his letter, James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul is telling Timothy to do what you're called to do. It can't be by your hand. You need to keep on being strengthened by the grace of Christ Jesus. You see the reality? And this hurts our egos a little bit, but they need to be hurt, I guess. The growth we need in the Lord will not come through our own efforts. We just can't do it. And I know people who claim to. I've shared with you, I, uh, it was my class this morning. I, I filled in for Bill. He and Steffi are out on vacation. I shared with them that whenever I meet somebody say, oh, I just, my religion is a sermon on the mount. I just do what Jesus would want me to do. I just live by the sermon on the mount. And my, my reaction is, now I never, I never confront somebody openly and as much as I would like to. But I will tell you something, and this was said in the most humble of spirits today. When I have somebody tell me, I live by the Sermon on the Mount, part of me, that part that's still being saved, wants to slap them on the right cheek. Okay, give me your left one. Folks, that's not our nature. And we can't do that. I can't love enemies. I have a hard time loving my neighbor as myself. I have a hard time loving those who aren't going to give it back. So when Jesus starts giving me all these statements, 
it tells me I can't do that. Now let's clear up the word easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we've sometimes translated that that means as Christians we have no worries. If we really love Jesus, everything ought to go great in our lives. But the word easy here does not mean ease. It quite literally means kind and good. My yoke is kind and good. And Jesus is showing compassion for a bunch of work animals here. Because a yoke in biblical days and even today sometimes is very little more than a hunk of wood thrown over shoulders of animals with a couple of leather straps. But Frank Stagg, who was a longtime professor at New Orleans Seminary, lived down the road in Diamond Head for many years. Dr. Stagg pointed out the image that is being used here is that Christ's yoke was well-fitted. It's not going to chafe you. It's not going to gall you. The yoke of the Pharisees would leave you bent over and bruised and hurting all through life. And Jesus said, that's not me. The second important thing about a yoke that I absolutely love is that it has been pointed out, folks, a yoke always involves two animals, never one. If you only have one ox or one donkey to plow your field with, you get a harness. A yoke is meant for two because People who study this with draft animals, you, you put two animals together under the yoke and they can more than double the load that they could do by themselves. In other words, together they can work harder. And again, Dr. Stad, whom I loved greatly. Jesus never imposes upon his disciple a yoke which he himself does not bear. Why is Jesus' yoke easy? Why is it kind and good? Because Jesus saying, every step, I'm with you. Every ounce of strength you exert comes from my hand, and I will not leave you alone. We are not asking, being asked to live the Christian life in our own power. And it is only as we rely on the grace of God that we have any hope. Every morning when we get up, our prayer ought to be not just, God, I want to be strong for you. Lord, make me strong. Give me what I need to live for you today. Give me the courage to talk into somebody's life, to to help them see answers to the problems they're dealing with. Give me the strength to love my neighbor, even when my neighbor is terribly unlovely. Jesus, help me. And we need to understand, to find the strength needed to grow, we must rely on God. And again, that's difficult for us because... As human beings, we want to take care of it. We want to do it. We want to shoulder it. We want to fix it. We want to, we want to save ourselves, and we can't. That's a crushing blow to our ego. I can't be the man I was created to be in my power. The Apostle Paul is in jail. 
He's writing to the church at Philippi that he loved very deeply, and he's thanking them for a gift. But as he thanks them for the gift, he's telling them, I don't want you to be worried about me. I'm glad that you want to be part of the ministry. I'm glad that you want to help me. But you don't have to worry about me because I've long ago learned what it means to be deprived, and I've long ago learned what it means to have plenty, and I have long ago learned to be in content whatever my situation in life can be. And he ends that statement with probably one of the most quoted verses in the whole book of Philippians. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in that principle, in the Christ who bears the yoke with us, who brings us along and gives us grace, we can become what God wants us to be. But it has to be with his hand. It has to be with his empowerment and his strength. Discipleship is so difficult that it can only be done through the grace of God. And I really wish I could somehow skate the next issue that Paul brought up. I wish I could just pretend it's not there. I told the family yesterday that I would not try to take their grief away from them, that they needed to go through it. And so, folks, I'm not going to lie to you here. I'm not going to make it easy for your consciences, your minds, or your just outlook in life. The reality of what Paul lets us see next is that discipleship results in hardship. If you're going to follow Christ seriously, if you're going to follow Christ the way he is calling us to follow him. And if you, uh, again, you want to know what Jesus says our responsibility is, go to the Sermon on the Mount. And we read, didn't we? If you hear and do what I'm telling you, like a wise man who built his house on the rock, Paul lets Timothy know. He let his son in the ministry know to expect suffering. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Timothy didn't want to hear that. But lo and behold, this isn't the first time Paul tells him that because in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, listen to what Paul says. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Why would Paul tell Timothy, you need to fan to flame what God has given you. You need to know that God is giving you a, a spirit of strength. Why would he have to tell Timothy, don't be ashamed? Do I tell you to stop doing something that I know you're not doing? I never had to tell my daughter, you are forbidden to steal a car. I was pretty sure she would never know how to hotwire one. Paul is talking to Timothy, and the fact that he has to twice bring up this issue, sharing in suffering, suggests that Timothy had not yet come to the place he was free from fear. 
Timothy had not come to the place where he would stand boldly under every circumstance. He was still faced with the temptation of fear and shame. Now, when Paul says share in the suffering, that's four words in our language. It is one compound word in the original text. And it has a a part of that compound word means with. Share in suffering with somebody else. Now, he doesn't tell us who the somebody else is here. Some people have speculated. Some believe Paul is saying, share in the suffering that I have. But in the context in chapter 1, Paul not only says that the churches in Asia have left me alone, he does talk about one man, Onesiphorus, who is with him and has stood with him and has suffered with him. And so they think Paul may be saying, suffer along with me, along with Onesiphorus. But it's probably broader than that. One translation. It says, join in the ranks of those who bear suffering. That dovetails very nicely into what he will say next. The suffering that Paul had in mind had specifically to do with witnessing. To sharing your faith, to being the man, being the woman God has called you to be. And the idea that you share with is incentive. Paul's telling Timothy, as bad as it's going to be, you're not alone. Others have fought this fight. Others have accomplished what they needed to be, and you can have victory as well. And you know that word witness that keeps showing up again. You're going to do what Jesus tells you to do. One of those things is witness. You may or may not know the word translated witness in our texts. The Greek language is martus. And that word gives us the word martyr. And in the book of Revelation, it is used as all those who have died for Christ in the time of the beast and who are now with their father. Every Christian, if you're seeking to seriously take the call of God in your life of living for the Lord, every Christian is called to be obedient. And we can't expect a pushback. You see, the reality is, if you and I just mind our own business, if we just go through life never never talking about our Lord, never going out of our way to make sure people know who He is, if we just sit back and watch, everything's okay. But a decision to follow Christ in discipleship will not be welcomed by all. And it is crucially important that we understand this truth. I believe that we are called upon by God to live by biblical principles. We are called to live by a principle of love. We are called to be people who treat others with dignity and respect. We are called to be workers for justice. We are called to be workers for the right. Live your life according to what you say you believe. It's absolutely crucial. Because if my life doesn't match with what I say I am, I will never be able to point anyone to our Christ. But at some point, we have to explain the life. Pure and simple, at some point, 
Again, listen to the words of Jesus in probably the, the most quoted passage out of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Folks, you cannot make discipleships without telling them about Jesus. You can be the finest person that ever walks the earth. But they don't know that it's Jesus who's done that in you. And before you say, okay, Danny, I got you now. He was talking to the apostles. He gave that order to the apostles. Well, guess what? It's not just for the apostles. Just to help you see that in Acts 1.8, he tells a large group of people, perhaps as many as 120, when the Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. Throughout the New Testament, we have people telling under the inspired Word of God, you need to live for Christ. You need to shine the light in such a way people will know that what that light is. And that means I need to make clear that I am who I am because of Jesus. I once, uh, and I, I am sure I've shared with you, uh, at a store I was working at, and I was a bivocational pastor. Uh, we had a new worker there. She'd been there about two weeks. And one of the ladies that had been there with me ever since I started as a 16-year-old stop boy said, well, how's your church going? And the woman the young, stopped to grab what she was doing. And she looked at me, and her eyes were huge. And she said, you're a pastor? The very first thing that went through my mind is, oh, my God, what have I done wrong? What, what have I done that would say, I don't know Jesus? What have I done? And I, I'm very calm because I've told you I've never played a game of poker in my life, but I've got a good poker face. And I said, yes, I'm a pastor. Why do you ask? And then she said, you don't act like a pastor. And again, I'm thinking, oh, what have I done So I asked her, well, how does a pastor act? And she said, they're mad and they're mean most of the time. And I said, thank God, I'm glad I don't act like a pastor. She saw something in me that denied what she thought it meant. Folks, we've got to be clear on this. You will not suffer hardship. Because of many things you do in this life, but the moment you are living intentionally for Christ, there's a difficulty. Some time ago, we looked at the book of First Peter together. And Peter told his readers, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. And then verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you're going to live for Christ, not everybody's going to be happy with you. And Peter said, if you are persecuted because of your faith, you're blessed. And then he basically says, don't be persecuted because you're a jerk. But when you stand for Christ, 
The world isn't going to like that. And to be able to stand in the day of trial means we need to be ready. And there's a lot of talk about persecution in our land, and we're beginning to see more and more pushback against our faith. But folks, we have not known the degree that others have. Gary Dimeris, talking about China, said, in spite of totalitarianism of communism in China, which was designed to stamp out all religions, we know now that there have been thousands of faithful people passing the gospel along from generation to generation. My friend Frankie Wyatt, who spent many years doing volunteer work in China, said in the region she was in, they called the Christian faith the Jesus disease because it was spreading like a pandemic. Dimmer said they certainly must have needed special strength, and they obviously found it. Despite oppression and challenges on every hand, they were able to resist the assumption that communism is the end of Christianity. Folks, this world will not stamp out our faith. The darkness cannot overcome the light. We may suffer some battles. We may have some struggle and pain. But we need to stand strong. And when it's tough, we turn to Christ. We have to be ready to stand. So Paul ends out this discussion with an implication that we need to hear. Discipleship requires endurance. It requires endurance. And Paul wanted Timothy to know that. And so he's not sugarcoated. How could he? He's in jail for his faith in Christ. If he just said, oh, Timothy, everything will be okay, he would have been lying to his son. But Paul sought to ready his son in the ministry for the long haul of Christian living. The rest of your life living for Christ. And he uses three metaphors to point the need to keep pushing ahead. From a soldier, he shows us endurance. The Roman soldiers had a single-minded purpose in life. Do what I'm commanded. They were willing to face hardship, unquestioning obedience to their commanding officer, and that gave Paul the image, you need to endure like a soldier did. By the way, the discipline they had, listen to this description. Wonderful little book you ought to get hold of, Manners and Customs of the Bible, that helps explain a lot of stuff that's going on. It said, every soldier was compelled to endure hardship. The weapons were heavy. In addition to them, the ordinary foot soldier was compelled to carry a saw, a basket, a pickaxe, an axe, a thong of leather, and a hook, along with three days' rations. You need to endure. John Corson draws from that image of soldiering with a description of what happened on D-Day. He wrote, Knowing that they would be mowed down by Nazi machine guns, the first soldiers off landing craft at Omaha Beach charged valiantly. Those who miraculously made it to shore safely began to climb the cliffs, knowing that they were most likely climbing to their deaths. Then he asked a very pertinent question, What? would cause a man to hit the beach or climb a cliff knowing he would be gunned down in the process. Then he makes reference 
people actually studied this. How were they able to do it? And the studies revealed the heroes of D-Day stormed that beach and climbed those cliffs out of appreciation for their commanding officer and fellow soldiers. What they found out, the concept of fighting for one's country is just too big. It's too abstract. I say, well, when I tell you, love everybody. That is so easy not to define. But love the people who've mistreated you. That's all of a sudden specific. It was too big. I'm fighting for my country. Risking their life for the safety of their commander or the safety of the soldiers right beside you gave these men the courage to press on in the face of death. Then Paul points to an athlete, an athlete's willingness to follow his or her training in order to compete by the rules, keeping the goal of the crown in mind. That was a beautiful picture of discipline. I've told you before, uh, when I was a young kid, 6th, 7th grade, I thought, well, I'm going to be a basketball star. When I was 13 years old, I was one half inch shorter than I am right now. I thought I had this, the tall genes of the Nance family. But there are a couple of things that stood in my way of being a basketball star. God just laughed and said, no, you're not going to be tall, Danny. And the other thing, Don can attest because Don saw it happen. I can fall out there on the parking lot. I am not the most graceful person that has ever lived. I can I'm not coordinated enough to bounce a basketball and move from one spot. I didn't, and I did not have the discipline to want to learn. But the athlete says, I'm going to push. I'm going to do my training. I'm going to follow the rules because I want the prize. And then he points to a farmer. I'm a grandson of farmers, and I've heard a lot of tales back when my maternal grandparents were cotton farmers and how my mom was out helping pick cotton when she was six and seven years of age, just dragging a little bag behind her and pretending she was all grown up. My paternal grandparents followed wherever the crops were. Uh, they followed wherever there would be work to, fi- to work in the fields. And hearing their stories, I've come to understand Farming is tough. The farmer has to work the field, sometimes in bad weather. Farmer has to fight bugs, locusts, and folks, the biblical locust is just a grasshopper. Fight the boll weevil in the cotton fields. Crop blight. And everything can go to pieces, but they have to keep pressing on till one day they're finally able to reap the harvest. And that's a show of perseverance. I've got a family to feed. I can't give up. Those are the images. And Paul's point was clear for his son in the ministry. Timothy, you have to keep pushing on. You have to keep pushing on. And Paul is saying, I want you to keep working. You may be exhausted. You may be in pain. Uh, You may be going through a good time, a bad time. But keep the faith, Timothy. Keep pressing on. 
Don't give up. And you know what God is so gracious in his word to do? He let us know that Timothy didn't. This is just wonderful. I love God puts first and second Timothy in that in his Bible for me to read about this young man's struggle. And then in the book of Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But in Hebrews 11.23, the writer of Hebrews told his readers, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Timothy didn't give in to his fear. He didn't give in to shame. He kept pressing on. And yes, in his own life, he was imprisoned for his faith. And God saw fit to let him go. Friends, I don't know else to tell you this. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life, in Christian discipleship. In 2009, Paul Carson wrote about the Mona Lisa of your life. And he basically said, we are an instant generation. And he do all sorts of images. Who wants to heat up the oven to cook? We'll do a microwave meal. It's not enough for me to have a landline. And if I ask how many people had landlines here, a lot of you don't anymore. We have a phone in our pockets. And he said, who has time to wait for dial-up internet? We have high-speed DSL. Ah. That was in 2009. Folks, We have internet with gigabyte speeds. But we are a people of, we want it now. And he points out the difference between us and Leonardo da Vinci. Probably the most famous painting in the world, the Mona Lisa. Many scholars believed it took da Vinci, get this, get ready, 16 years to finish that painting. There's evidence that he worked from 1503 to 1519. In the 16th century, he did this. Now, later on in life, we know that uh, Da Vinci did apologize. He said, sometimes I get carried away by my projects and I put things off. But folks, if I put off something for 16 years, it would never be finished. He was determined to perfect this painting. And by the way, there are some people who say he didn't really finish it. You can tell by looking at the painting, there was more stuff he should have done. But he kept on pressing on. Uh, Just to let you know, in 1962, it was insured, assessed by insurance, and uh, policy was written up for $100 million. Do you know what 1962 $100 million is today? $700 million U.S. dollars. It is the most expensive painting in the world. And the, the gentleman's name, the point he is making here. We may live in a microwave society. Da Vinci didn't. And there is no microwave discipleship. In fact, it's been pointed out, I probably, I might not ought to say I am a Christian in the sense of I that's all I have to say about it. And, and I've alluded to this. I can look back to the moment I gave my life to Christ, but I am still in the process of being saved. That's why I think thoughts like slap them on one cheek, see if they'll turn the next. I'm still in the process, 
And I, uh, I'm on my way to becoming the person I am meant to be. And one day when Christ shall return, when we shall see him as he is, in the moment of the twinkling of an eye, we will be like him. And my salvation will be made complete. Until that time, God is still molding me and moving me. And so our growth begins with faith, the trusting in the Lord. We may have times when our faith and our growth is impacted by doubt. And doubt does not negate a holistic faith. And in the end, it can strengthen us. Remember, Timothy had a struggle with fear and timidity, but he came through. St. John of the Cross talked about the dark night of the soul. Most of us have struggles. Frank Stagg again said, The truest faith confesses, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Remember that, Father? Before Jesus. And Stagg said, One who boasts that he or she has never has doubts is fooling only oneself. So God isn't, he doesn't fall off our throne because we have a momentary doubt. But when we press through and we know he is real and he is true, that doubt is alleviated. Our grace, our growth should follow even the impact of Jesus. We're told he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Folks, we need to be growing in wisdom. Today is not the age, uh, and it never has been an age where Christians should let their minds just not grow. We need more and more wisdom. We need to grow up. That growing in stature, we need to grow up. He used to preach a sermon, Peter Pan Christians, because there are some Christians who just don't want to grow up. We need to grow closer to our God, and we need to grow close where we can speak to our fellow man. So to continually grow in the faith, we must persevere. For those of you who are great Winter Olympics fans, you may know the name Scott Hamilton won the gold uh, in the 1984 Olympic. He and his wife have four children, Tracy, four children, two of which are adopted from Haiti. And he's a very committed Christian follower of Christ. He went off stray for a while. But in a New York Times article, he talked about his experience, and he reveals a kind of really neat take on sin and failure. In the interview, he said, I calculated once how many times I fell during my skating career. 41,600 times. But here's the funny thing. I got up 41,600 times. That's the muscle you have to build into your psyche, the one that reminds you just to get up. And he let people know very strongly in his testimony, through a strong relation with Jesus Christ, you can endure anything. God is there to guide you, he said, through the tough spots. God was there every single time, every single time. With God for us, when we stumble and fall, We get up. We confess our failure, ask for strength, and we get up. Because this is a lifelong commitment, folks. I was saved at the age of eight. I'm 63 years old now. 
and God's call on my life to grow has not yet ended. There's a lot ahead of me that God wants me to see and God wants me to know. And the same is true for you. We can't give up. We must press on. When we look at discipleship, when we understand that we're becoming disciples we're meant to be, we've got to understand that this is only possible through grace. That if I make a decision to live for Christ the way he is calling me to live, there will be difficulty. But in that difficulty, I'm not alone. I have my Christ beside me to give me strength. I have brothers and sisters who can help carry me in my times of weakness. And if I'm going to live seriously for Christ, I have got to endure. You and I are called for the long haul. The race we are called to run is not a 100-yard dash. The race you and I are called to run is not who can get to the back door of the church first after service or who can get to the nearest restaurant before the other church groups get there. We are called to keep pressing on throughout our lives. Right now, you may be well on track. You may be everything God wants you to be right now. You may be so entangled. And that word about being entangled says the cares of this world have just got you in its grip. You may be so entangled by the things of this world that you've lost sight of who you're supposed to be. So whether you are living as you are called to do or you have slacked off, we must understand we have further to go. A lifetime of following. So this morning I'm asking you, will you lead yourself to the control Yielding your hearts to Christ, your commander-in-chief. Will you live as a soldier of Christ, an athlete disciplined in running the race, a farmer persevering in the field, ready for the harvest? Will you know Christ can strengthen me? And Christ can see me through this life.